with Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 218 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am Itchy. From I have become mosquito fodder, it turns out, in my own home. Outrageous. It's an outrage. Would you like me to come and sit next to you because they like me (laughs) and they might like me a tiny bit more than they like you? Well, I have Gary, and he has a similar thing to you, because you both run hot, and I think that's what they uh, appreciate. And he's only been bitten once. So my two female co-hosts, where do you think the most annoying biggest one is? Um, oh, under the bra strap yes, somewhere. exactly. Sweaty. I once went to see some Shakespeare outside, and when I took my bra off, I had like a bra of mosquito bites drawn on me <laughs> where it had just gone all up the edge of them. Yeah. That's not terrible. That's barred. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I did get some stuff in America that was like full of steroids and was great, but I don't think they're allowed to sell it here because they're a bit more casual about what you can buy <sighs> over the counter in America. I fucking love American chemists. They're amazing. And if you want an even bigger treat, head to Mexico. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) for all your medicinal needs. Imagine if it was us, if you phone 111, (laughs) just like, (laughs) America or Mexico. I think effectively, Mickey, it is, if I'm honest. I'm Hannah Zonlevy and I've been dog-sitting and it's totally heartbreaking. Why? Why? He's so fucking sad when you leave that he just just lies down with his face and just it doesn't work for a podcast but imagine the most pitiable face that you've ever seen imagine my face listeners <laughs> yeah and that's what I looked at every time I went I mean every time Aww. he was he was excited I was there but it was a little bit tinged with well with someone I'm glad someone's here but if I'm honest I'd rather it was my actual owner and then he was carrying a shoe in his mouth round very forlornly and lying on my friend's bed, just like sniffing the place she last slept. And yeah, Aww. it was really tragic. Greyhounds do already have what looks like a, quite a sad face in the same way that bulldogs do too. And quite often people go, oh, is she all right? And we're like, yep, it's just a face. She's very happy. She's fine. So that probably exaggerated it. And also, as a small comfort, dogs don't have any concept of time. So, you know, for him, he'll feel like mere seconds of despair. What a ridiculous thing to say that a bulldog looks sad. Like that is like everyone knows what a fucking bulldog looks like. People think she's really happy when she's knackered because she she looks like she's laughing. She's like, <laughs> and they were like, yeah. Now she's just tired. <laughs> it's kind of like my daughter, to be fair. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and yesterday I missed a visit by Sue Pollard. Devastated. I'm hoping this means that she pops around every Sunday, Jen. <laughs> if only, if only. No, Sue Pollard yesterday made a flying visit, no one knows why, uh, to the Electric Palace Cinema, which you know is just around the corner from here. Yeah. So they just posted a picture of her on the steps at the Electric Palace, looking like I would describe her sort of the vibe as a kind of like steampunk Davy Crockett. Yeah. Yeah, and I yeah. think it's important that we never try to second guess why Sue Pollard is doing whatever <laughs> she's doing. She had a lovely time. They had a lovely time. Obviously, everyone adored her. It was great. I was sad that I wasn't there. A friend of mine, I might have told this on the podcast before, but a friend of mine told me that they were in a queue for a taxi once in London and uh, or that they had hailed a taxi in London and it pulled up and Sue Pollard just appeared and possibly because she's 
unaware of the world around her rather than she's rude, just got into this taxi. And I said, did you say anything? And he said, I was so confused by her sartorial choices. I just stood there, <laughs> opened mouth and let her drive off in my taxi. <laughs> Maybe that's why she does it. Maybe, Maybe it's just, just to bamboozle people into stealing their taxis. Do you think, like, she's been on Crime Watch loads over the years and we've just all been too <laughs> distracted by a hat? I've always said this would be the way to pull off the perfect bank robbery is to just dress really confusingly because people think they have to look out for little details. So if you just bombard them with little details that are incorrect, like one of those tiny, tiny top hats, maybe, you know, and carry a small lunchbox and things like that. Yeah. That would be what people would remember rather than they look like those birds that present standard issue. So, yeah, Jen and all the listeners, if it is reported on Crime Watch that Sue Pollard has robbed a bank, we all know it was actually <laughs> Hannah Dunleavy. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they actually have banks anymore now, do they? Will someone think of the bank robbers? I tried to rob a bank, but it's now a fancy wine bar. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, I talked to Tracy Dawson about Let Me Be Frank, her new book about women who disguise themselves as men to get what they wanted. Bloody good for them. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to former world champion Pauline Mensah about being a trailblazer in women's surfing and the new documentary Girls Can't Surf. They can. <laughs> <laughs> and in Rated or Dated, it's 1992, so you know what mm-hmm. that means. Bitches be crazy. Wowzers. As we watch Single White Female. Yeah, I do really wish 24-7 had been available on literally any streaming channel. But first, protests are plenty and more than a dash of excrement. Brace yourself, Hannah. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. (laughs) Cue sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Coming to you from an island where we're literally swimming in human shit. Oh, mate. It's like the 80s again. (laughs) Oh, I do like to be beside the poo side. Could have gone with Wee Side, but yeah. it's not as horrific, is it? No, Poo Side is more. Yeah. It, I mean, we are literally back in the 1980s, aren't we? Like everything, like no sewage system, <laughs> uh, <laughs> everything shit, government's in turmoil, everyone's on strike. More on that later. Threat of nuclear war, all the big hitters, they're all back, Jen. This is the thing I say to my mum from time to time. This isn't my weird silver lining on this, although it feels like the end of times at the moment. We have been here before. Like, it has felt like the end of times before. And it wasn't. Are you sort of saying the world that cried apocalypse? Like the boy who cried apocalypse? I'm just saying it's felt apocalyptic in the past and I'm sure it will feel apocalyptic again in the future. And next time maybe it will be the apocalypse. Who knows? Because that climate change thing is, like, going to just keep cracking on, isn't it? Yeah. Jen, this has been a big comfort. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, as you will know, we've just come out of three continuous days of strikes by rail unions. And I can tell you that while I support it, it was a pain in my ass. I'm not going to lie. Seconded on both counts. Yes. And as you'll know, this wasn't the first round of industrial action taken by rail unions this summer. And indeed, it looks unlikely to be the last. General Secretary of Rail, Maritime and Transport Union, RMT, Mick Lynch, said as much on Saturday. And he can consider himself ticked off, apparently, after Transport Secretary Grant Shapps, yep, Grant Shapps, wrote to him. Green Biro, all capital letters. (laughs) Special little train stamp at the end. 
He's got one of those ones that Serena Wiegmann had in the uh, in the Euro with like the multi colours on it and four like, different colours. Yeah, maybe yeah. occasionally just. No, for, I like... don't think Shaps is cool enough. No, he's not cool enough for that. Okay, no. Okay. Anyway, he wrote to him encouraging him <laughs> to reconsider the offer on the table. Lynch, who I personally think comes across very well, and I've certainly seen quite a bit of support for his cause. I fucking love him. He just comes across really well. Like, he just does. And I I realise that I'm very much in my own echo chamber on social media, but I see a lot of people saying that he comes across well. Anyway, he says in response to Grant Shapps' Green Biro letter, and I paraphrase here, (laughs) nope. (laughs) (laughs) Those strikes are set to run and run, basically. And like I said, while inconvenient, striking is a very important right and it's one we need to protect. And it is quite Agreed. hard. Like, I, I, I do understand it's quite hard when you feel inconvenience to keep that in mind sometimes. But if you want somewhere to lay blame, it's worth considering that rail workers are by no means alone here. An eight-day strike at the port of Felixstowe is underway over pay and conditions. Felixstowe, for the uninitiated, it's just, just across the water from me as I am now but it is the UK's busiest container port and it handles just under half of the country's container trade and the impacts of this strike could last for months according to experts. But that's not all. Just this morning, which is Monday as we record, members of the Criminal Bar Association voted to go on an indefinite, uninterrupted strike in England and Wales as of September 5th over pay, working conditions and legal aid funding. Meanwhile, the risk of imminent strikes from Royal Mail workers also looms. The theme here is a common one, paying conditions. Yeah, pretty basic. Well, yeah. So the 8% over two years offered to RMT sounds pretty generous, right? How about 7% for the workers in Felix, though? I think it sounds like, I don't know, I mean, I come from a civil service background where generally, like, you're lucky if you got a 1% yearly rise. But that is before you consider that the current rate of inflation is more than 10% and expected to keep rising. Yeah, exactly that. Wages just aren't rising to match the cost of inflation and the cost of living crisis. We're just in a fucking terrible, terrible state of affairs. And the thing that I just always, and I've said it on the podcast before, and I know you agree with me, Mick, and I know that most of the people listening probably agree with me as well, or they wouldn't be listening because it's our general kind of vibe here at Standard Issue, but I don't understand why people can't compute that giving people who need money is more economically sensible than giving money to people who will just sit on it and not spend it because they've already got enough money. It doesn't make sense economically. I mean, it's really basic economics 101, isn't it? Yeah. For your economy to thrive, people need to have money to put into it. Yeah. And if not, if they're not giving it to people, they'll put it back into the economy. But like you say, we'll just sit on it and go, oh, look at all the lovely money I've got. Then your economy's fucked. It's bollocks. Staying on a similar theme, there's a monologue Sharon Horgan does in the television play Together, which aired last summer, in which she explains exponential growth. And it is a truly extraordinary scene because she's talking about exponential growth in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. She rages against the scandalous failure to safeguard care homes. Hospital patients sent in, quote, like blankets laced with smallpox. Residents, quote, killed by stupidity, killed by dumb fuckery. And it has more clarity and power than anything put out by our Sharava government, which had more than a hand in the care homes disaster. 
This scene in Together comes after one in which her mum, who contracted COVID in a care home, has died alone because the staff are too busy to be with everyone. And so instead, she watches her mum die on FaceTime. And just thinking about that scene makes me tear up. It's, it's a phenomenal bit of acting. It's incredible. And it's a reminder now of the importance of care home staff, how they step in for families that can't be there or simply aren't there anymore, caring for some of the most vulnerable people in our society. They are an incredibly valuable resource, which means it'll come as no surprise to you when I say that in reality, they're undervalued, underpaid and have to deal with seven shades of sloppy shit on a daily basis, both metaphorically and literally. Mm. In case you're wondering, the current average pay in independent care homes in England is £9.01 an hour. To put that into context, Starbucks baristas earn over a tenner an hour and Amazon warehouse workers earn a basic wage of 10 to £12 an hour. However desperate you are for a double espresso or that book we've recommended, the service provided is far from life-saving. Since the post-COVID reopening of the economy, staffing shortages in the care sector in England have been of increasing concern. In October 2021, British charity Skills for Care warned that at 8.2%, adult social care vacancy rates in England were exceeding pre-pandemic levels, which in 2019 stood at 8%. That figure has since exceeded 10%, according to Skills for Care's monthly tracking. We are beyond crisis point. The knock-on effect is, of course, inadequate care for thousands of vulnerable people. A wave of inspections has revealed people being left in their rooms for 24 hours a day, denied showers for over a week, enduring assaults from fellow residents and left soaking in their own urine. It's just not enough staff to keep on top of things. Like I said, this story ties in really with what Jen's just been talking about because it's not about training. It's not about the staff caring anymore. It's not a reflection on the care workers at all. It's about better pay and working conditions. The pandemic placed this immense strain on the care workforce. They endure crushing workloads with many working 14 to 16 hours a day for weeks on end without a break and many months without a holiday. A job at Starbucks for less stress and more pay seems pretty tempting, particularly as the cost of living crisis bites harder. You might be thinking, oh, I'm pretty sure there was a social care reform that the government was talking <laughs> about. And indeed, that is true. They've begun to implement it. But it comes nowhere near resolving this crisis, given its main focus is on capping costs for service users rather than improving pay and conditions for care workers. As ever, it feels, like Jen just said, staggeringly short-sighted when it's clear that spending more on staff, giving staff more money will benefit everyone, care users, care providers, care workers, and to go back to Jen's point, taxpayers. It also ties in very much with what I was talking about last week, about what's going on in, in nurseries and early years childcare at the moment, because there's a massive, massive staffing crisis, staffing shortage mm. in those settings as well, for the same reason. They're paid yeah. fuck all, and you should want the people looking after your children, and you should want the people looking after your elderly or poorly relatives to be paid well. You should want that. And I know that these things cost loads of money and I know that it's hard. I mean, fucking hell, I pay for my daughter's nursery. I'm a single parent. Like, I, I, I know that these things are expensive. But that's where the fucking government should mm -hmm. be stepping in to top it up and make sure that this essential infrastructure that also makes economic sense because it allows the people who would be caring for them to go to work and pay into a tax system yep. 
it needs to work. These things don't exist in a vacuum. They all feed into each other and they need to work and they're not working. And the reason they're not working is because of 12 fucking years of negligent public policy. Absolutely. And, you know, we're a feminist podcast. We have women at our heart and the cause of women at our heart. It's not a coincidence. It's, mm, you know, the, yeah. the fact that the workers in nurseries and in care homes are predominantly women. So it's that dismissal of what that work actually entails. And actually the expectation that a lot of women will do that for no pay at all. So maybe you should be grateful that you're getting any money for it. We're just absolutely ignoring all the expertise that goes into it. And it's the same thing that we see when mums are dismissed as being, oh, like, oh, you know, mums are stupid. What are mums doing? Talking together. And it's like, hang on, but you think they're all right to bring up the next generation? It just all is part and parcel of the same mentality where we diminish women's work or what's seen as women's work. And also, who are the people who are impacted by those? Because it would be women doing that work for free if there wasn't someone stepping in to do it. So the end users, the women who would be doing those things, they're the ones who get fucked over as well, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. So it is. It's it's all on women, all of it, at every possible end of it. I mean, not... Sorry, that's a bit of a stupid thing to say because obviously everyone is impacted by the cost of living. I'm going to stop calling it that. I've said it before. I'm going to stop calling it that. It's a man-made situation that we're in. It's not... It's not an earthquake. Exactly. It's not an earthquake. It's a thing that we have created that is happening that we can stop to a certain extent. Yeah. But we have a government that yeah. chooses not to. It's that simple. Sorry, monologue over. Um... <laughs> Giving Sharon Horgan a run for her money. Here she is. <laughs> Mick, would you like some good news? Yes, please. Okay, well, this week we're congratulating Singapore after the country repealed a law banning gay sex, which had effectively criminalised homosexuality in the state. The 377A law was retained after Singapore gained independence from Great Britain in 1965 and has been subject to fierce debate in recent years. The ban actually criminalises gay sex between men, but it's seen in the country as a ban on homosexuality and I think it's probably fair to say it hasn't exactly enhanced progressive attitudes in what is a relatively conservative country. I think that is very fair to say, yeah. yeah. Thanks, thanks. Prime Minister Lee Sieng Long announced the decision on national television stating that this is the right thing to do. He added that the move would bring the country's laws in line with current social mores. But there is still lots more work to be done. Perhaps many people, and I include myself very much in this bracket, take for granted that they can move freely in the world facing comparatively little prejudice or risk to their freedom or indeed person because of the fundamentals of who they are such as their sexuality. All those lovely places in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. Barbados, Dominica, Grenada, Jamaica, to name but four, because there are a fuckload more than four, still criminalise LGBT people. In Barbados, the maximum punishment for being gay is life imprisonment. In Qatar, where this year's World Cup will be held, slow claps FIFA, the maximum penalty for being gay is death by stoning. In fact... The death penalty is still the maximum penalty in eight Asian countries, which is admittedly not such good news. So, so sorry about that, guys. Just, uh, yeah. Jen, with regards to FIFA, I'm pretty sure they are involved in what we will call pride washing. So mm. when it's Pride Month, etc., the rainbow flags, yep. flying, etc., etc., yep. don't fucking hold your World Cup in a country I that mean... puts gay people to death. 
for so many reasons we should be boycotting this World Cup in Qatar. Like for so many reasons, and that's probably that's probably a subject of a of a journey off the blocks in 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 future months or coming months. Just to add to the bad news and the good news section, a whopping 47 of the 70 countries that have illegal same-sex relationships were part of the British Empire. That is 67%, says journalist Lyric Ferguson, who focuses on travel safety. This isn't a coincidence. In almost all cases, the laws outlawing consensual gay sex were put into place under British rule Mm -hmm. and were left in place following independence. Well done, fucking us. Size forever, fucking empire. But... This is the good news section. So let's end with the fact that even given our appalling history and terrible legacy, the UK is actually the sixth safest country in the world for LGBTQ plus travellers. Thank you so much for bringing that back, Mickey. (laughs) Well, you have equal pay, but you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we tip our hat to genuinely brave women marching against some of the most violent sexism in the world. It's just over a year since the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan capital, Kabul, promising not to restrict the freedoms of women before promptly, inevitably restricting the freedom of women. The Ministry for Women has been disbanded. Women are barred from most government jobs, secondary education and from travelling more than 45 miles without a male guardian. It feels like an arbitrary distance. Mm. I don't know the ins and outs on that. In many cases, women have not been allowed to work and in May, the militants decreed that Afghan women will have to wear the Islamic face veil for the first time in decades. I mean, there you go. It's this section and that is a whole lot of sexism Mm. and it is upheld with imprisonment and violence. And so when about 40 women marched through the Afghan capital chanting bread, work and freedom and demanding rights last week, their bravery cannot be overstated. Taliban fighters seized the women's mobile phones and broke up the protest in the end by firing into the air. They didn't beat us much this time, one of the protesters told the BBC. They acted differently than earlier protests when we were beaten. They fired shots in the air. Though we're afraid, we came out to advocate for the rights of girls so that at least the Taliban will open schools for them. That is brave. It's amazing, isn't it? Since the Taliban swept through Afghanistan a year ago, taking control of the country amid the chaos of the US and UK troop withdrawal, which was messy to say the fucking least, Mm. women's lives across the country have been fundamentally changed in what is basically gender apartheid, sex apartheid. On next week's podcast, I am chatting to lawyer campaigner Zaira Saidi about what's happening to women in Afghanistan and how the UK has let the Afghan people down. I mean, yeah. There's not a lot I can add to that, but I will be really, really interested to listen to that interview for sure. Brace yourself for interesting, if depressing times rather than fun times. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I really look forward to that. And I was a bit like, oh, I don't know if I look forward to it so much. Just like, I'll be really interested to hear what she has to say. Because, uh, yeah, it's not something I know loads and loads about, but I do know that we fucked it up. Hello, hello, Mickey here. Do you know what I've learned over the years of making women championing content? It's that even though I bloody love making women championing content, I really struggle to say the phrase women championing. (laughs) It's tricky. Try it. Anyway, just a little reminder that if you enjoy our women championing content, you could support us by chucking a bit of cash at our Patreon, which you'll find at patreon.com forward slash standard issue. In return, you'll get ad-free podcasts, the warm glow of helping to make women championing content, and at some point, 
a shout out like hello and thank you to fresh patrons chris gard and beatrice from italy we see you we appreciate you Look, obviously we know times are tight and belts are needing to be even tighter. We talk about it enough on the podcast. So you can also support us for zero quid pound sterling by giving our YouTube page a follow. You can most easily find that by tapping standard issue magazine into the YouTube search bar. And that way you'll also find the video we made when we very first started and we're very tired. And I know, I know it might seem mad to ask you to follow us there when there's currently no content, but we are hatching plans we can only action once we've got a thousand subscribers. Help us, please help us. And now for some more women championing, for some more women championing, oh for fuck's sake. And now for some more content championing women. Hello, Hannah here. I am joined by author and screenwriter Tracy Dawson, who is currently in Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us, Tracy. I'm so happy to talk to you. Now, we're here to chat about your book, Let Me Be Frank. For a start, brilliant title. Did you come up with that? I did come up with that. I came up with that very early on. And I've said to myself, it's possible I may never write anything as good as that title. Can I say the whole title? Yeah, well, I was just going to get to that, but you say it. Yeah, you say it. I want to hear it in your voice. (laughs) Okay, it is. (laughs) A book about women who dress like men to do shit they weren't supposed to do. I have to say I was thrilled that HarperCollins, my publisher, didn't bat an eye at uh, having the word shit on the cover, which I don't think shit is a a curse word anymore. I think we're past that, right? Agreed. Although not according to Instagram or Twitter, who won't let me do a promoted tweet or promoted post because of the word shit. Did you know? They won't take my money. (laughs) But I'm very proud of the title because it tells you exactly what you're getting into it it tells you what kind of tone you know what I mean Mm. what kind of energy this is going to be I worked the title a little bit do you want to use the word disguise do you want to use this and it's like well no that because not everybody is wearing a disguise in the book anyway very proud of the title and thank you for for appreciating it (laughs) yeah I like it a lot so the subtitle gives us an idea absolutely of what it is, but I want to know about why you stumbled ac- across this idea for a book. Well, almost 10 years ago, you know, I was starting out as a TV writer here in Hollywood. You go around and you take these general meetings with studios and they talk about their new shows and they're looking for writers. And I was in one such meeting and the female executive said, uh, well, she's an executive. I don't know why I said female executive, except it sort of comes into play later. The executive said, you know, are there any of our shows that you could see yourself writing on? Did you connect with any of our shows? And I said, oh, yes, I like this, this and this. And then she said, oh, well, none of those shows have any female needs. (sighs) So and there was this sort of pause, this like where I think I turned 50 shades of red (laughs) and felt quite ashamed. You know, I felt really stupid because it never had crossed my mind that I would be considered, you know, a specialty item, like a niche item, you know, and, and she was essentially telling me that there were jobs open, but not for me. So I kind of went home and fantasized about, you know, pulling a a Dustin Hoffman, a reverse (laughs) and, you know, because I thought, as I say in the book, I truly did think I don't have cheekbones. You know, my my boobs are small. Would you just let me write some fucking jokes? Yeah. You know, but I wasn't seriously going to do that because I'm lazy and that seemed like a lot of work. But it did plant the seed, you know, in terms of women throughout history who perhaps have had to 
disguise themselves in order to get opportunities and to break boundaries. And I think that the, the seed just planted there. And then I, I started to write, like I wrote some scripted stuff, mm. like inspired by my anger and my frustration and my feminist agenda and trying to use comedy, you know, to bring all that to the forefront. And then years later, I mean, because I'm a TV writer, that's how my brain would think, right? Like, how do I want to use this how do I want to tell this story? And so Let Me Be Frank was originally a TV idea, which I, I don't think I actually write about in the book. But I thought maybe it could be like an anthology series, you know, where each chapter it would be each episode, right? And I put together a pitch. And you know what? This could still happen because obviously there's people we're, we're talking to producers and stuff about the book. But we didn't sell the TV show. And so I felt really just I had done all this research and I loved these women so much. And I felt like. I was shocked by some of their stories so much. Like I was angry that I'd never heard of them before. So I felt this like, pr not pressure, but I felt like this duty, you know, mm. what can I do here? I, I don't care if it's not a TV show. What could it be? And then I was like, could it be a book? And that's not a thought I ever thought I would have, Hannah. You know, like I didn't think I was going to write a book, but I said, you know what? I'm going to take all my writing and all my research and I'm just going to start writing. Let's see what happens. And then I wrote a few chapters and I sent them to some book agents, you know, and I had a, a script in development at the time. So I was feeling like, you know, like the pressure's off. Yeah. You're like, so I sent it out and I was like, is this a book, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> and their response was very enthusiastically. Uh, yes, this is definitely a book. So that's how that all happened. And I really feel like it was such a beautiful turn of events and such a lesson in life that, you know, you think that you're rejected, but maybe it's just a pivot to like yeah. a different avenue. And as a creative person, it's just, it's fantastic to, to find like, Oh, I, I can write a book. I want to write another book. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I'm middle-aged and I've just discovered this. <laughs> There's a couple of women in here that our listeners will be familiar with. Cause we've talked about them before. Anne Bonnie, Ellen Craft, Dorothy Lawrence, who I absolutely adore. And yeah, there are some that I've, I've never come across. So tell me how you went about your research. Well, first of all, thank you for mentioning Dorothy Lawrence. People very rarely mention Dorothy Lawrence and I feel very, very like sweetly towards her. Mm. I, I, I'm sure you could tell in the chapter, I felt how she went after what she wanted. Yeah. She wanted to be jerk. She made it to the front and that, and that her story was spun as a failure. It just, it's like, it just gets me. So and it has a really sad end, I have to say. It's story, a very yeah. sad, it's very dark. Like, like several stories have, have a dark endings and several stories have incredible, powerful, beautiful endings, yeah. you know. But in terms of my research, you know, I discovered, you know, not only did I did I enjoy writing a book, but I love, I mean, I just love research. And it doesn't surprise me because before I would start any TV script, it would just be weeks and weeks of like reading and digging and like, you know, really in-depth character autobiographies that I'd write about these people mm. before I started writing the script. And so it made sense that before I started writing the chapters, I just wanted every source I could possibly dig up. I wanted to be like a private detective. I wanted to find the one sentence and the thing in that book where the academic person thought it was just a throwaway fact. And I went, no, wait, what's that fact? So I just tried everything I, I could using Google and the internet, which is incredible. And like, you know, New York Public Library archives. I love New York Public Library. I was in New York recently and that, that must be my favorite Ugh. building in the whole of New York. It's beautiful. I agree. I, I love going in there. I love being in there. I love the smells and the wood. Yeah. It's just like, 
I'm obviously not based there, so I just did a little bit in the beginning for the world shut down. Yeah, that's a, yeah. <laughs> so I just went in depth. I just tried to get like multiple sources. And then when I would find people, the people that were included in the book also, it evolved, right? Because mm. someone like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, she was the second woman to graduate from medical school in America. And she was the first surgeon in the Civil War. And she liked to wear, quote unquote, men's clothes. She's famous. She's quoted as saying, I don't wear men's clothes. I wear my own clothes. She was arrested innumerable times for impersonating a man until finally they said, this is a woman that served as a surgeon in the Civil War. She was taken as a prisoner of war. She was given the Medal of Honor. Stop arresting her. She was very famously wanted to grow out her curls and be very visibly female, mm. but wear whatever clothes she wanted. And it was her whole feminist agenda was based around dress reform. Like freedom of movement was so important to her. And so what I'm bringing her up is she wasn't disguising herself. She wasn't, but she was breaking boundaries. She was breaking rules. She mm. was literally arrested but she's the sole recipient of the medal of honor you know in the united states and she was an incredible life and i said i have to include her because she is defiant i mean the book really is about defiance you know it's not about gender identity it's not about anyone who chose to identify as a man and then continue that way for their whole life it's it's a, a series of people who used male dress or male pseudonyms as a lot of the authors to gain access really like like you say that i can't go there or i can't be that well fuck you i'm gonna yeah. do it anyway which of course i very much related to because i don't take no well as an answer i'm a very fiery person and so i just felt like these were my sisters and i just was like here we are let's tell these stories did you say earlier that you did know of ellen craft i did yes she recently in the last year it would i think it would have been last summer we have something called the blue plaque scheme where literally our blue plaque is put out outside a house that somebody of note lived there are a couple of few other qualifications but yeah basically someone of note had to have lived there and Ellen Craft got one last year. So we had something about that. That's right, because she settled over there. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, guess what? I would say the majority of people, if not every single person I've spoken to who's read my book in America and Canada, no one has heard of Ellen Craft. Yeah, I'd say she's way more famous over here than she is over there. When I learned of Ellen Craft, who, for, for any listeners who don't know, a light-skinned mixed-race woman, enslaved woman in Georgia who escaped with her husband from slavery, passing as a rich white male mm -hmm. plantation owner. The story is jaw-dropping. And so to me, I felt both amazed and blown away, but also angry that there's so many people that don't know her story. And also, I'm sorry, I don't want to see a fucking movie about Elvis. I want to see a movie <laughs> about Ellen Craft. Yeah. Are you joking me? I'm just infuriated by these I mean, everything around Elvis, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's someone I want to bring up from this book that I would say if I was going to pick a favourite, because she is kind of the antithesis of doing this thing for good. And that is, <laughs> also, I get to say the word witch pricker, Christian Cadell witch pricker, who kind of reminds me of a sort of Puritan Phyllis Shafley, and I can't quite work out why. <laughs> Phyllis Shafley, if anyone doesn't know, is probably easiest to describe as she was played by Kate Blanchett in Mrs. America. She was she was very pro-life when 
the abortion uh, back in the days where they were trying to get abortions for women in America the first time. But there's something about the way that she, she kind of embraced this sort of, oh, I can do this thing and get away with it, and then used it against women, used it against other women, which is kind of what Shafley did. She was right. taking the parts of feminism that she wanted, which is I can do this and I can live my life, but then oppressing other women's rights. So can we hear a bit more about Scotland's witch pricker, please? Yes. I mean, first of all, again, had not heard of witch pricking uh, <laughs> when I began the process of researching this book. And it's rather horrifying. But I really wanted to include, you know, sort of the anti-heroine, right? Mm. Because, again, to harken back to my TV writing career, all of my shows that I've ever written, every script is female driven, right? There's a female central character. And generally speaking, they are not typical uh you know, sweet, wrapped up in a little bow female character. And Hollywood loves to say that they want anti-heroines. Oh, bring us, bring us your anti-heroines. Mm. You know, they've got their Tony Soprano and they've got their Walter White. How about the women? And then you bring them something and they go, whoa, uh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, that's a little too much. And you go, ugh. So Christian Cattle, I wanted someone that, yeah, it's like a book about incredible badass you know, rule-breaking women doesn't have to be all positive, you know, because mm. equal, equal opportunity, right? Some of us are massive dickheads. That's right. <laughs> equal rights to be a fucking asshole. And so I like to think that she saw this opportunity and that, as I say in the chapter, there was, I mean, I can't say for sure, but you can't help but wonder if there was a self-preservation aspect to her story where she sees what's happening. There's people out there trying to uh, determine who's a witch and who's not. And it's like it's 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 a particularly fraught time in Scotland during that time, as I as I lay out in the chapter. Maybe she saw it and she's like, huh, this just seems like a, a bit of a pantomime. Like, I just need the outfit. <laughs> and uh, she probably thought, like me, I don't have much cheekbones to speak of. <laughs> I can probably do this. She probably had the exact same thought as I did in the studio executive's office. Yeah. A way to make a buck, you know, and also perhaps save yourself from scrutiny mm. so that you wouldn't be accused of witchcraft. But the actual practice was taking like a long needle and piercing a person's body, most oftentimes women. You know, obviously some men were accused and, and convicted of witchcraft in that time, but I'm sure it comes as no surprise to anybody that the majority were were women. And there was this idea that if you stuck a needle in a person and it didn't bleed or didn't hurt, then that person was a witch. And so, yeah, it's so funny you said Phyllis Shafley, because I, I remember thinking like, oh, this is, you know, the original um, Aunt Lydia yeah. from yeah. Handmaid's Tale, you know, where you're just like, oh my God, talk about women not supporting other women. You know, it just was important to me to have these darker characters. And also it's pretty fascinating. Like it's pretty grotesque mm. and like thrilling. It's just also kind of had to lie down while I was writing that chapter because it was heavy. Like what, you know, throwing women in bodies of water to see if they float and shaving their heads and stripping them naked in public to like stick these needles in their body. I mean, it is pretty fucked. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting because when I was flicking through this, of course, you know, we're talking about people who literally dressed as men to achieve what they wanted. But there is a sort of an interesting parallel with women in the later part of the 20th century and now, say, for example, women in power, because you would argue that Margaret Thatcher dressed as a woman 
but she also sort of metaphorically dressed as a man in as much as she lowered her voice. She had a very masculine energy and she took a very masculine energy into meetings. And so, yeah, there are still women now who are kind of cloaking themselves in. The only way to get forward is to be more like a man. Yeah, that brings up two things for me. One, once when I was working in a writing room where it was gender split right down the middle, but the people that got more stage time were definitely the dudes. And I'm a pretty loud mouth person who's like, I'm not a, what is it, a shrinking violet? Yeah. Um, but I did find that when I lowered my voice, this is this is sad to say, but as an experiment, you can't help it day in and day out, right? Mm-hmm. You, when you're noticing people being talked over, women talking and just, it's almost like it's not registering in their eardrums, yeah. like the sound of the voice. And so I just noticed I started talking slower and lower and everybody would stop and listen to me. And I went, well, that's fucking depressing because none of us should have to do that. Dear Lord, just I'm so sorry. My voice has a similar tenor to your fucking mother. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and you're worried that I'm telling you to finish your green beans. Sorry, that's not my problem. That should be your problem. Absolutely. But the other thing it brings up is Hatshepsut, the Egyptian pharaoh yeah. who, you know, she did not disguise herself as a man. Um, she had an unusual role where she was a queen regent because The king was like a toddler, but then she just masculinized her imagery and the statues and everything that was built in her honor just over the course of her reign just became more and more masculinized to the point where they were removing the breasts and putting on a fake beard on her face. And so, you know, a very, very early version of Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) Yeah, Tracy, your book is out now. All good bookshops. If you don't find it, you can ask for it because it's supposed to be everywhere. Yes. <laughs> One last question I have, which is let's talk about these lovely illustrations in it. Uh, all the art in the book is done by this fantastic German artist, Tina Burning, who has become a dear, dear friend now. And when I discovered her, you know, we knew that we wanted illustration, but we didn't want stuff that looked like no offense to anybody. We didn't want stuff that was like, oh, an illustrated book and it's fun. And look at these cute portraits of women you know <laughs> yeah I wanted someone that was you know like a painter someone that was like a an, an artist <laughs> and when I came across Tina I said this is exactly this is exactly it and I thought we're never going to get her you know and she said yes it was meant to be because um the, the two of us working together was a pure joy collaborating on this such respect, such like just a back and forth discussion. She would create something and send it to me and then I would give feedback and notes and then she would make change. I mean, it was an absolute dream to do that with someone all the way over in Berlin, Germany while I'm in Los Angeles. And I'm actually going uh, in a few weeks, I'm going over to Berlin and I'm going to... Oh, Berlin's a great city. I've never been. I'm so excited. She not only did the portraits, she did all the, obviously there's a lot of spot art. And also she designed that, um, at hand lettering, mm. which is so incredible. She did all that. It's, it's a, it's a beautiful book. I hope people pick it up. Because it's written in a lively and entertaining style. I think it is suitable for your young feminists. It's, it's, I mean, it was, it's a great read for anyone who's interested in women in history. But I think if you've got some, I said to you, we've got, I know quite a lot of 13, 14 year old feminists, and I think it would be absolutely perfect for them. I've been thrilled to get messages from parents who read the book and then said that they're passing it along to their kids, you know, their teenagers, not their young. Someone wrote to me a, a private message on Instagram. As soon as my nieces are allowed to read the word fuck in print, 
I shall be giving them this book. I said, start them early. Let's get that feminist agenda. But uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. All the 13 and 14 year old kids that I know also know me. So they have heard fuck <laughs> already. Exactly. Obviously, I'm not an academic. The goal was to feel like I was sitting with you at a cafe, you yeah. know, and I was and I was saying, will you get a load of this? What the fuck? Yeah. You know, and, and having a laugh while at the same time having your your mouth kind of hang open at some of these stories. Terrific. Tracy, where can people find out more? Where are you on the socials? Both Twitter and Instagram. I'm at, at Dawson Tracy. And that's where people can find me. I have a website. I don't know if people care, but I'm proud of it. It's TracyDawson.net. So if you want to go take a look, take a look. <laughs> Tracy, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Hannah. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined on the Zoom by Pauline Menza, former women's professional surfing world champion and one of the contributors to the new documentary Girls Can't Surf. Hi, Pauline. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Jim. So I've just been watching this film, Girls Can't Surf, which is absolutely fascinating. And I've got a lot of questions about it and a lot of thoughts on it. But could you tell me, first of all, because you started out surfing in the 1980s, where I think the, the film sort of describes it as women are relegated to the sidelines of the professional surfing tour. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like when you first started surfing as a woman? When I first started, it was really mainly all men in the water. It was very, very rare to see a woman surfing. So you're just always competing against the guys and they didn't really want women in the water. Yeah, it was really hard just trying to be out in the water but also get waves. Like with surfing back then, it was a real pecking order. So like the stronger you were as a person or the um, tougher you were, the more likely you were to get a wave. And so you can imagine being a young girl, you're like last on the list of getting waves. But, you know, a positive thing out of a negative was that because it was so hard and so tough, it really made me become who I am today. And and my career was, was probably successful because I realised to get anywhere in surfing, I really did have to push for what I believed in or, or anything that I wanted to achieve. You know, I realised that very young and yeah I I guess it helped as well having three brothers (laughs) you know I was always sort of pushing for anything I wanted at home and so it was kind of like a normal life for me back then I suppose you know it wasn't just in the water it was also at home. I was interested to see that it was this kind of real like pretty boy but also quite a macho sort of sport it was uh, all these guys and it had it had this real sense of prestige to it didn't it and they were the, the animosity that you guys faced from some of these guys was I would say on the extreme end of things like some of the instances that are described in it are sort of like almost a bit violent towards you guys would you say that the opposition that you faced at times was quite intense yeah you know I think especially the time that I was there the world was going through a recession and the guys were only caring about their own back pocket and they were really stressed about having any money and so like we were the first target to get rid of the women and you know there's a lot of interviews where you see the guys saying those comments about us that you know the women need to dress like the women or whatever 
is because they didn't want us coming and taking their money. So they're really threatened by the women. And, you know, now it shows good reason why (laughs) they're threatened is because they knew that as soon as the women started being able to show what they could do, that would slowly creep in and, and take, not taking their money, but taking some of their glory, I suppose. And, you know, that that change too, like I was talking to some of the earlier surfers, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, and the guys treated them really well. So that whole macho thing happened a lot later. And it's nice to see now that it's, there's a big turnaround. You know, there's a couple of old school people online still. There's always like the keyboard warriors mm. and some uneducated people out there. But it's really wonderful to see such a big shift in surfing and see acceptance. And, you know, when I watch the top surfers in the world now, the men and women all getting on as friends and treating each other equally, it's just really awesome to see. You know, I feel that this movie came out at such a perfect time because, you know, women speaking out about equality and the the movie really shows what we went through and what needs to change. And I was absolutely blown away. The, the movie did so well in Australia and we had, I can't tell you how many dads were at the movies <laughs> with their young girl surfers and, you know, mums and kids and stuff. There's a bit of swearing and stuff in the movie, but it's a really lovely message in the movie about just fighting for what you believe in and what can happen if you just keep pushing for it. It's an interesting sport because there's a lot of kind of paradoxes in it. I actually thought compared to some other sports, and there's an obvious example here in the UK, I don't know how much you follow soccer and particularly like European soccer, but you might be aware that England just won the women's Euro here so it's like a really big deal in the UK because it's the first major football tournament that we've won in 56 years and it was women of course who won it so there's loads of chat in the UK at the moment about sort of equality and in sport particularly and equality between male and female footballers and watching this documentary the thing that struck me is that actually I think surfing is quite ahead of its time compared to a lot of other sports so you guys were getting sponsored a long time before women's football has been getting sponsorship in the UK and obviously it, it, it wasn't a huge amount but that's grown and grown and grown but also women's surfers are now paid equally as of 2018 that is still not the case in women's soccer in the UK so I wonder what you thought about that do you feel like it's ahead of its time? I definitely believe it's ahead because we were one of the first sports to have equal prize money but you need those strong characters in sport, whether it's just the competitors or the people involved, to keep pushing for what they believe in. Mm-hmm. And I think surfing's done that. And now you're starting to see women or sports starting to push more and more and then equality is happening. And I think it's so important for women to have that role, you know, like – there was a pro surfer who now is the CEO of Rip Curl. And so when women get in positions like that and can express to the guys like how they're feeling with the soccer, believe me, worldwide, everybody knows about that. And women in general (laughs) are just smiling ear to ear like, yes, you know, the biggest amount of people ever went to go watch the game. And from the movie perspective, it couldn't have been released in England at a better time Mm. because – 
I hope that so many people go see it and realise what you can do if you if you push for what you believe in and the message in it is really beautiful and I also think that it's the kind of movie that should be shown at every school, you know, so kids can learn the history. It's not just surfing, it's very similar history in, in all women's sports. Mm. It is a similar story in other women's sports. You know, you had the situation in, in tennis where uh, a group of women, including obviously now very, very famous Billie Jean King, got together to sort out the women's tour and, and get prize money for women. And, and then you've got, you know, a few characters in, in football who've been pushing for equal pay and things like that. And I wondered, because you had to help each other really you you kind of had to have that solidarity in order to help yourselves because it was beneficial for you obviously if you guys could all kind of group together to help each other out did that impact in any way on the kind of competition between you when you were competing in the tour you know there was always some characters who struggled to do like for instance we had meetings together and there would be some characters that, like, didn't want to help at all, but they wanted to have their two cents of what they think. And so there was a little bit of tension sometimes with that. But in general, we all wanted the same thing. So we tried many times to, like, you know, that in the movie you can see where we don't paddle out because of there's no waves and they wanted us to compete where there was no waves that day. And that actually happened many times before everybody didn't paddle out because they were sponsored by the company who was running the event, so they had to paddle out. And so we realised that we really needed a representative to push forward when we didn't want to surf if it was horrible conditions, that that representative we believe in went forward and said what they think on behalf of us rather than the girls fighting between each other. And things started to change, so we realised just how important it was. And, you know, I think the girls who are actually on that community and going and speaking up on behalf of us, they struggled a little bit from their own competitive point because they were, you know, getting more pressure from the guys and taking on this stress of the Mm. women and stuff. But they also saw the benefits in the future of surfing. And I love in the movie how they captured that one part where we're having a meeting in Hawaii and and Rochelle's saying that, like, we need to fight for our future. And it was so true. And, again, this movie helps people think about where surfing's coming, that they still need to keep pushing. And, like, you know, I retired a long time ago now and I went to so many little kids' contests and no one recognised me or knew what I did and who I was. And now every event I go to, <laughs> all the little girls are like, oh, there's Pauline. Like, you know, so it's it's really great that they know their history now and know how it got to where it is today. And, and it's making them aware that if they want to get more, they have to keep pushing. So I wanted to ask you because you won the Women's Amateur World Title in 1988, age 18. You won the World Championship as a pro surfer in 1993. Uh, you were narrowly beaten twice in 91 and 92 by Wendy Botha. You won 20 World Surf League events and eight world qualifying events. And in 1993, when you won the World Championship, you didn't get any prize money for that. And I wondered, if you'd been a man, how much money would you have made in a, in a career that successful? I think prize money-wise, I won something like $355,000 in 
20 years. And at the time, like when I quit surfing, I was, you know, up in the top of like with Kelly Slater and Andy Irons at the time of winning a lot of events and they were earning millions. So, yeah, it's pretty ridiculous, the difference. Yeah, here I am still buying things in one country and selling it in the next country to survive. And these guys are staying in five-star hotels and traveling business class. So it was hard seeing stuff like that to know that you were struggling so much and to see these guys just getting everything thrown at them. And, you know, even stuff would happen like they'd have parking spots at the contest for the men but not enough for the women. So we would have to go find, if it was a busy area, we'd have to find a parking spot way down, you know, 10 blocks away somewhere. So at one point you were actually, you were living in a van, weren't you, when you were competing while you were Australia's number one and you were like buying jeans when you were competing in the US and then like selling them when you're back in Australia or or drinks and, and things like that. How tough was it? to find the motivation to keep going was it hard or was it or did you just love it so much that it was never really a question for you I loved it so much that I wouldn't stop until the money ran out and like I actually did really well under pressure I'll never forget this one event in particular I was at Huntington Beach and everyone said I should have won I got second and um I was pretty bummed that you know, I didn't think it was fair that I got second. Anyway, it was only a smaller event. I think the winner got a thousand dollars and second was five hundred. And um, I got up on stage and I said, "Oh, you know, thanks. I'm really stoked. I just hope next year gets bigger and better." And they got set aside and say, "Oh, you know, you're going to have to apologise to the sponsor now for saying that." And I'm like, "What?" And they said, "For you know, not saying that the sponsor did very much." I went, "But it's true." I said, I just flew from Australia to here and it cost me so much for my ticket, my hire car, my accommodation, and I just won $500. I said, that didn't even pay for my car hire. And then I went and saw the the guy because if I didn't go see him and apologise, I was going to get fined $1,000. So I went up to him and said, look, I'm really sorry. I've been told I'm going to fine if I don't apologise to you, but I'm not going to apologise because do you know that I just won $500 and I got second in this event? And I had to fly all the way from Australia to compete. And he said, no, look, I'm not going to tell him that you're not apologising, but do you realise we put in a few million to this event? And I'm like, well, you can see my side, can't you? You've put in a few million and I've got $500 out of it. So I was always still just quietly fighting. So, like, you know, he was nice enough to not tell them I didn't apologise, but I just believed in standing up for myself. And, you know, I probably didn't get sponsors when I was on tour as well because I didn't become what the industry wanted me to become I was still always myself and you know they wanted this look and I even played around with that in um that same event in in America at Huntington Beach every time I try to get sponsors they always seem to have the blonde haired blue eyed girls so as a joke I did my hair blonde <laughs> and then instead of having blue eyes I did a blue mohawk <laughs> and then I put sparkles all over my face and then that year I ended up winning the event so I stood out in a different way. One of your main rivals Wendy Botha she she did a, a naked photo shoot for Playboy magazine and she was like well you know I took the money and I, I needed the money to you know fund what I was doing and you in the documentary you kind of say 
no one could really understand why she did that. And I wondered what impact that had on you in terms of being a female competitor in the sport. Did you find that to be undermining? Because obviously there was this whole image cultivated of these kind of dolly birds in in, in the women's surfing world. Yeah, I think a lot of the surfers were really bummed because, you know, we fought to be recognised as competitors, not as being sexualised. Because you were, weren't you, massively sexualised as female competitors? Oh, absolutely, all the time. And, again, that's why I was saying, that's why I didn't get sponsored because I didn't have the look that they wanted. As a competitor, I did, still to this day, I'm in the top probably five women of being the most winningest surfer in, in history. And I did so well and just could not get a sponsor. I believe it's two reasons. One, because I didn't have the look they wanted, but also that I was gay. And it was very macho industry. They, they wouldn't want to sponsor a gay woman. Just just so not cool back then. Funny how times have changed now. <laughs> now it's like politically correct to get someone who's like slightly Asian looking gay and short and freckles. <laughs> so what do you think is is next for women's surfing? Do you think it's, it's come as far along as it can? Because there's equal prize money now, so that's obviously great. But what about sponsorship? Is that still an issue in, in the kind of modern setup? I'm not sure what the men and women are getting sponsorship-wise, how different it is, but... The one thing I would like to see, still see change is the amount of men and women competing. I'd like that to be levelled. You know, there's still more men allowed in the um, the top part of surfing than the women. And they say that they don't have the depth yet, I suppose, but I've watched myself in how see how surfing's grown. As soon as equal prize money came into effect, just how many like mums and dads are getting their girls, like going to high-performance centres, getting them all the boards and they need, take them on surf trips. Just the push that's behind women surfing now is incredible. You know, perfect example is one of the guys, surfers, Josh Kerr, has a daughter and he's pushed her surfing to a whole new level. He's an aerial surfer, which women in the past haven't really done aerials. And now his daughter's just doing amazing aerials and she's moving into this whole new level of surfing. And I've seen this is keeping on happening with all the younger girls. You know, I'll just say in the next year or two, definitely, without a doubt, they could have the same amount of men and women competing. So, Pauline, Girls Can't Surf, a new documentary about the history, I guess, of of women's professional surfing, is out in UK cinemas from August the 19th. So if any of our listeners go and watch the documentary, and do you have a social media account? Are you, are you on Twitter or Instagram or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Naughty Pauls, record. But if you Google Pauline Menzi, you'll find me. Here in Australia, they know the history of women surfing and what I did for the sport and in Bondi Beach, they're aiming to get a statue of me because in Australia there's only 10% of statues are women and I think all of those statues are royalty. And we've got, you know, famous guy athletes that have got statues and so they're pushing to get a statue of me at the beach. They want it to be paid by the community, so they want it to be a real community event. So they've done a, a GoFundMe called Pauline in Bronze if anyone wants to contribute to help pay for that statue. So it's Pauline in bronze on GoFundMe. 
yeah brilliant okay so if anyone listening wants to put some money towards that because we have a very very similarly terrible statistic for statues of women in the uk and i'm not sure i've ever seen a statue of a female athlete in the uk i'm sure that's all going to change now that the lionesses have won the euro but we shall see Pauline, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. And it's, it's a really fascinating film and I, I do absolutely recommend that people go and watch it. You're welcome. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, my eyes, my eyes are burning. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, God. Blame all of the streaming services that weren't showing the perfectly good film that I chose for this slot, but we couldn't watch. This week, we watched 1992's Single White Female. My eyes! Adap- my eyes are burning again! <laughs> Adapted by John Ruse from a book by John Lutz called SWF Seeks Same and directed by Barbette Schroeder, who two years earlier had won the Best Director Oscar for Reversal of Fortune. With all of those men involved in a film about women, what could possibly go wrong? Sorry, sorry, we'll have to say that again. I mean, what could possibly go tits? (laughs) Starring the now-retired Bridget Fonda as Ali and Jennifer Jason Leigh as Hedy, the film debuted at number two in the US box office on its opening weekend. Behind a film I didn't pick because I thought you'd hate it, but now I, and possibly you, wish that I had chosen it. Unforgiven. Is that Clint Eastwood? Yeah. I fucking love that film. Yeah, I thought Jem would... It's about three hours long. I thought Jem might lose her mind, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. But, I mean, I'm not sure... Uh, At least this had the good grace to not be three hours long. That's all I can say. (laughs) It felt three hours long. (laughs) It really did, didn't it? (laughs) Fucking hell. Okay, Single White Female made a total of $84 million at the box office and received generally favourable reviews at the time of release but now has a score of 53% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is frankly more Rotten Tomatoes than it deserves. In 2005, a sequel, Single White Female 2, The Psycho, was Major (laughs) Shock, a release that went straight to video. It's very subtle, that title. Yeah, and it's as if she wasn't a psycho (laughs) in the first one. Did the people who made the sequel, they hadn't seen the first one. Well, I think they had because its plot, from what I read, is exactly the same as the plot of the first one. So let's get to that plot. Ali, who looks like the mushroom from Super Mario, lives in New York with her boyfriend, Sam. He can't keep his dick in his pants. So she throws him out. And in order to pay the rent in her huge but rent controlled apartment, she advertises for a roommate. No black people welcome. Although that's okay because in this version of New York, there aren't any. After rejecting a series of women, she settles on Hedy, largely because she's there when a tap breaks and all the laughter and the wet clothes. (laughs) It is an erotic thriller, Hannah. I'm intrigued by your choice. (laughs) Do they describe it as an erotic thriller? Is it erotic? I don't think so. Sorry, I should say it bills itself as an erotic thriller. I didn't realise that. I thought it was just billed as a thriller. But I suppose it's a thriller with, well, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Soon, they've got a puppy and are borrowing each other's stuff. What could possibly go wrong? Sorry, I'm going to have to record that again. What could possibly go tits? (laughs) Well, 
Sam comes back and he's absolutely never going to do it again, I swear. And Ali decides to believe him and get engaged to him and live happily together ever after. For this to happen, Hedy needs to fuck off. But guess what? <laughs> She's not happy with this plan because she likes slash love slash wants to be Ali and because it turns out her twin sister died and she's never recovered from it. What follows includes another mushroom bob, a dead dog, an attempted rape, Frank from Succession, some state-of-the-art, no really, software, a sex club, Chekhov's air vents, an incognito blowjob, workplace harassment, a neighbour that will call police about loud music but not about gunfire and screaming, some extremely flammable clothes, and Chekhov's basement. The end. Had either of you seen this before? Yeah. I think I've seen it a few times before, but I think I must have always stopped watching before the end because I had no recollection of the ending. Right. Mick? I have never seen it before, but I knew the plot because I had read about it. I think it's quite referenced in other popular culture, isn't it? Doing a single white female is a, a thing, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. I had seen this before. I can remember watching it before, but I think I must have been pissed, which I quite often was when we were 15 and 16 around our mate's house watching a film because I cannot remember any of the detail of it. Mm. I can only really remember the the rough plot of it. So I'm going to start with what I think is the big question of this is we quite often say, do you think this film is feminist? I want to ask, do you think this film is anti-feminist? Because I think that Hedy makes some proper feminist points in this and they are the things that are are supposed to count against her she thinks sam will do it again she thinks rapists should be made to pay for their crime she thinks ali isn't particularly comfortable with being a woman or the the status that she has with a woman and i think all of those things make her interestingly a feminist but she's shown as the bad guy well I think it's interesting because, as we've discussed before, in this era, there is that like weird sort of trend for these weird bitches yeah. be crazy films. Like in this year, there's a bunch of bitches be crazy films, and that there must be a reason why that all happened at that time. I think Mickey will say it was uh, backlash. It's no coincidence that 1992 is the year that Susan Faludi's yeah. backlash came out, and yeah. you should all read it because it's still relevant. Yes. All women uh, they started right. having ideas above their station, Hannah. So what you need to do to those women is make them mental, and then the other women will be like, "Oh, I don't want to be mental like she yeah. is. That bitch be crazy. Yeah. I'm a good little girl." Can I add another thing to that? To the list of um, of things that she gets right but she's the evil one one of the plot devices in it like so basically i found the idea that she would be rescued by her would-be rapist yeah, oh, to absolutely. be like yeah. literally saved by the bell end mm. like absolutely <laughs> yeah. abhorrent i was just like i can't believe someone wrote this like why does this guy get redeemed i mean he, he gets shot in the face twice but like you did hear Hannah say that a man wrote it, right? <laughs> I know, but I just, I could not believe how tone deaf that was. Like, on, on every possible level. I don't remember that at all. I don't even remember the, the him trying to, you know, assault her or whatever. I don't remember seeing that. I think I would have been quite young when I've watched this before. But, um, but yeah, just, I, I was so shocked that that was part of the plot. 
think bad men quite often get some sort of redemption. I know, but an actual rapist or would-be rapist like becomes her saviour. Just it, it's so tone deaf. It's I, I couldn't I couldn't believe it. Anyway, I'll shut up now. Mick, carry on. Oh, I'd, I'd done my season for Lady Butlash advert, so you're fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Can I mention two things? It gets really right. Yeah. Okay. I do write all of my romantic letters in block capitals. <laughs> I actually wrote on the thing. Who is he? Donald Trump. <laughs> and I seal all of my important emails with a handprint. <laughs> that made me laugh so much. Yes, yeah. Now they'll know it was you. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Yeah. The counterpoint to the fact that I think Hedy is a feminist, I actually think she's properly sympathetic. She's got a really sympathetic backstory. Whereas Ali... She's supposed to be the one that's like a good girl and great. And she is bland at best and a total fucking bitch at mm. worst. Mm. And yet we're supposed, I mean, I don't think anyone should be killed, but we're supposed to be like, hooray for her. This wonderful creature survived and this terribly tormented, mentally ill creature died. Yeah, right at the beginning, Ali is set up as wanting to be a trad wife, really, I suppose, because they're talking about babies and she's like, oh, I want one more than the national average and them all to look mm. like you. And you're like, actually, she's supposed to be this high-flying, successful yeah. businesswoman. Or on the way to doing that, because she's had this incredible idea in a very male-dominated realm. I mean, that software is, like I say, state-of-the-art incredible. <laughs> it was at the time, Hannah. <laughs> But obviously, Sam's much more important to her than any of her other outside of her relationship goals or dreams or anything like that. Mm. And friendship. She doesn't have any friends. She starts off by saying, I hope when we get married, I'll be less lonely. Oh, fucking hell, love. That isn't your solution at all. Make some friends. Maybe yeah. start by being less of an arsehole. That would help. But, you know, she's not very... Not great with Graham upstairs, is she? She's like, he's her best mate and she's not very nice to him. She does promise to feed his cat and then appear to never feed his cat uh, throughout the next period in which, I mean, I know that would be perhaps superfluous detail, but yeah. Mm. I think Graham gets payback though, because there's a lovely line at the end that really made me laugh and it said, after Sam's funeral, I cried for a whole week. Graham said that wouldn't bring him back. A whole week? For yeah. fuck's sake, Graham. I can't yeah, wait to I read your, your pamphlet yeah. on dealing yeah. with grief. Yeah, Graham's <laughs> like me. Back and put it together. It's been a fortnight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the one thing I think this film does get right is that Graham is mortally injured. Well, maybe not mortally injured in the bath just lying there and the cat is still like i know i'll sit on his neck because yeah. that's the most comfortable thing for me that's my favorite bit when we know the cat made it um, yeah. Like, yeah go cat i thought he was quite lucky that the cat hadn't started eating his, his face. face eating him <laughs> that's only single women okay cool hannah you might have this on your list of discussion points but we should probably talk about the fact that it's really lesbophobic it's really anti-lesbian you say she rejects a series of women before Hedy turns up. They are all just sort of lesbian stereotypes. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I did read an article that said it was really um, queerphobic and suggested that Hedy was actually in perhaps more in love with Ali, whereas I think it was a that was a different type thing, wasn't it? To me, I didn't read that as love. I read that as weird oh, obsession. Think... No, she's just mad. Do you not think so either, Jen? I think there's some of that. She's no. always getting undressed in front of her and finding nuts. her an excuse to cuddle. And when Ali buys herself some time, she does it by kissing Hedy. 
But I think she's just desperate for love. I don't necessarily think it's sexual love. I think it's just love. Erotic thriller, Hannah. Which bit of this have you missed? (laughs) But I agree with you because absolutely, of all of those women, I'd have picked the lesbian that came round and said, you know, we could take that wall down and make that. And I'd be like, you're in. Absolutely. I've got some shelves you could help me with to put up. That would be amazing. I would say the film hates women, specifically gay women. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's it's terrible. It was, I felt, I felt really angry with it. In fact, I had to stop watching it at one point because I was just like, oh, I could barely control myself from just fast forwarding through it, bits of it because they were just so terrible. Mm. And I thought this isn't really in the spirit of watching a film, is it? So I actually stopped when I did some other shit and came back to it when I was less angry with it. Can we go back to the fact that it's an erotic thriller? Sorry, this is, and it is, it does tie into you being angry and me being angry and Jen being angry with the film as well, because there are, it's just, it's just tits galore, isn't it? It's gratuitous mm. tit shots all the time. There's but a lot my of My question tits. is, who is this film aimed at? I think it was aimed at women. And so who is it trying to titillate when it clearly hates gay women? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but I think it's the same as... It's just this male gazy, isn't it? I guess the point is that it's it's aimed at women, but there's something thrown in there for the lads. Yeah. If you're if you're going to drag blokes along to watch this, we're going to give them something to look at. Anyone in a heterosexual couple thinking of watching this with their boyfriend or husband, don't. (laughs) Would be my would be my advice. There are a huge amount of unnecessary tits in this. Oh, so many. Do you want to know something really weird that I had down? Because I did have this down as a, a question. Um, one of the really weird things is I thought the sound on it was really bad. And that's even with my hearing aid on. I, I found it quite difficult like to hear. So I watched it with subtitles on. And the subtitles have all of the swearing taken out. That's really, that is odd. That Isn't is odd. it? Yeah. It's all right for me to watch tits, but it's not all right for me to hear the word fuck. It's a really odd Sort of editorial choice, I think. Yeah, almost, but almost moral choice. Yeah. 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 And on the nudity front, I actually did something that I never thought I would ever do in a film, which is there's a point at which he stands up out of bed and he's completely naked and it flashes past the screen. And I actually paused it to see if you could see his cock. And right. And I would never, can't. ever ordinarily do that. I'm not like a teenager. Sure, sure. Boy. Stop clearing your throat. Carry yeah. on. <laughs> uh, and you can't. You can't. And of I thought, again, no. they created some sort of shadow or they darken that area so it, it isn't visible because you can show tits and arse of, uh, of women, but my God, not a penis. That would be a step too far. I'm not saying I'd like to see a penis, but I, I, I certainly want to see equal opportunity nakedness if that's what's happening. Yeah, totally. It's a very strange load of events that, that transpire at that point where he's obviously like so she's gone round there and she's given him a stealth blowjob and she's now looks exactly like his fiance. I was thinking like wouldn't you be like for a start wouldn't you be like well that feels different to like when I'd normally get a blowjob off my long-term partner. Yeah. Gotta say he is asleep. I, I think that is actually quite well done and this is all very relative but when she sexually assaults him Hedy is looking very very like Ali at this point she goes on he is fast asleep and he does realize immediately when he's awake and he stops and she doesn't but he stop doesn't kick her out actually what he does is he looks quite frightened he curls up and he's like he tucks himself in the bed I actually thought that was quite well done given how mm. the rest of the film is handled like I say this is this is all relative Mm. yeah i mean i suppose yeah and when he does challenge her she stilettos him to death i just can't imagine 
mental health issue like that being treated like this if it was made now i can't believe that you'd see someone who'd like who had clearly been driven mad by grief or whatever you want what she needed was someone to say come on it's been a week stop crying it won't bring him back um, <laughs> read this pamphlet i've written on getting the shit over it i can't imagine that passing muster now given the conversations we have around mental health no, but I think it's exactly the same in that respect as um, Fatal Attraction. Like, she's clearly... The, like, the main character in Fatal Attraction is clearly not a well woman. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like, there's mm. obviously some mental health problems there. But we are invited to make her the villain of the piece and him a guy who's, like, completely fucked her over and been awful to her and his wife and everyone involved and just behaved like an absolute sack of shit. Mm is like the person that we're supposed to root for. It's it's very kind of similar vibes to that, I think. One tiny little silver lining is... We'd never have to watch it again. <laughs> two tiny silver linings, <laughs> what Hannah just said. But also, so Sam dies and Hedy says she killed him because he assaulted her and then when she said she was going to like tell Ali, that was it. And hmm. there's no way that Ali is ever going to know anything different can we talk about the phone call as well right at the beginning where his wife calls up and then it's like all oh, his ex-wife rather and it's um played over the answer phone mm. uh you know mm. your old school answer phone and that's how she comes to learn of his indiscretion and she says it's so good and she's just like you can't just come round here and have sex with me <laughs> it's just like this film is just so like the opposite of subtle isn't it it's just it, it it's so condescending to the audience the way like it has to be everything has to be spelt out exactly like yeah this is what's happening now guys like oh you can't just it was i loved that i thought it was great i wanted to just bring something up about how sexism you know hasn't really changed in the intervening period since 1992 because obviously Mm -hmm. films like this were being made but also bridget fonda as i said retired from acting so I think a long time ago, she had a kid. Um, she's married to uh, Danny Elfman, who, Mick, you'll know who he is. Yeah, um, he's the composer for all yeah. of Tim Burton's films. Yeah, and uh, if you don't know who he is, go to his Wikipedia page, because ironically, his haircut in on his, the picture on his Wikipedia page is exactly the same as Bridget Fonda's in this film. <laughs> and she retired to raise their kid and then just never went back to acting and really is apparently living a quite ordinary life. And which, of course, for the media means she's in hiding. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I, because I did the, I wonder what she's doing now, because you never hear from her. Hence, I find this. And I find yeah. a load of things in the Daily Mail or, and loads of, you know, TMZ and all this shit about on the few occasions that she goes out and she's snapped, you know, and she is now, you know, grey and black hair and she has put on weight. And she was makeup free, going about her daily business, and she gets snapped. And unbelievable amount of snidey art- articles about how, you know, she has had the temerity to get old and put on weight. Mm. And you just think, this is from someone who's actively chosen to leave that life behind. And yeah. still, she gets judged by the standards she was being judged by in 1992. Yeah, totally. I saw those as well. Yeah, me too. Hang on, hang on. Let me see if I can get odds from the bookies on what you two are going to say here before I actually... Rated or dated? Dated. Yeah. It's not even just that it's dated, it's the hated hated. category. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Absolutely, I can only apologise. It doesn't even have the good grace to have a character break both their legs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah, it's me next. And what I've come up with is a film I've never seen before, and that is Lethal Weapon. Now, this is one of those films that I I absolutely loved as a kid, and I am going to feel very ashamed about Little Mickey's Taste. (laughs) Standard Issue for All Women.